TV. And um, he, he just he carried on about it. Came back to me two or three times. And in the end, I did. I said, look, you know that's all bullshit. And of course, that night, the funniest thing was that night, Brad and Russell uh, on a speakerphone rang me, laughing their heads off about, you got caught swearing on television. Alan Sefton, he called me and said, you can't do this, they're going to eat you. And I said, no, they won't. And he said, no, they'll eat you. Well, at the end of that press conference, Peter Blake came and saw me and he said, you ought to be a bloody politician. As, as they're approaching, I said to Gerald, load both of those barrels up with those big smoke ones you've got. And when they come through here, they're going to come close, right in close to us. And if they do, I want you to put them both through the spinnaker. Well, we let these both barrels off. I've never, I never laughed so much in my life. Well, the guys on the yacht, they just all hit the deck. Welcome along to Broadreach Radio, the Yachting New Zealand podcast. My name is Michael Brown, and today we talk to Harold Bennett, who is best known for being the principal race officer for five America's Cups between 2000 and 2013. He was front and centre for Team New Zealand's first defence of the Cup, and oversaw racing as it transformed from monohulls to foiling catamarans. But there's a lot more to Harold than America's Cup. He was this country's first professional sailing coach, is credited with establishing the Royal New Zealand Yacht Squadron's youth training program, coached at five Olympic Games, and more latterly has been heavily involved with the Manly Sailing Club and Russell Coote Sailing Foundation. Harold talks about some of his experiences at the America's Cup, including the controversy, conflict and craftiness. He delves into the time when race officers he was working with refused to go into the start sequence, swearing on live TV, and managing the racing as Oracle staged their amazing comeback in San Francisco. He also details his experience of taking the Pakistan sailing team to the Olympics, how he became involved in race management, and how he got roped into working with Russell Coots. And, of course, like all guests, he tells the story of his worst wipeout ever. Just to let you know, Broadreach Radio will take a break next week because I'm away on leave, and we will also be switching to a fortnightly rather than weekly format. Right, it's time to hear from Harold Bennett. Enjoy. Harold Bennett, welcome to the show. Thank you. Nice to be there. Well, uh, we've heard in the introduction uh, a brief rundown of some of your experiences in sailing, and um, I guess for more than a decade, you were synonymous with the America's Cup. Um, so will you be involved in next year's America's Cup? No, not with the America's Cup itself, but some of the um, supporting events I'll be um, be involved in, but um, not with the America's Cup, no. So will that feel strange um, for you, given it's on home waters? Well, not really, because, um, you know, I, I had five America's Cups that I'd been race officer with, and um, that... And, you know, although I did the first two here, um, that was the beginning of, you know, quite a quite an era for me. And I got to the point, I think, in 
San Francisco where um, I felt that it was time that somebody else got into the fray and, and did that. And we had um, John Craig lined up for that. He was with us there and um, and basically running it uh, as the race officer, as the PRO. So I felt that was the ideal time to get out. And, you know, as I'd, I had my 70th birthday there, so, you know, I thought, crikey, that I'd better... Um, I'd better stand stand aside and let someone younger have a crack at this. But no, it doesn't feel strange. Um, it, it is interesting, and in fact, when when I watched um, Bermuda, uh, it was quite interesting. The first couple of days, I'm watching it um, with no emotion whatsoever, and um, it wasn't until we're getting down to the third or fourth day that I thought, why can't I should be able to barrack for my own team now. And because in the past I've been so impartial that I'd sort of forgotten about that and I'm sitting there like a dummy um, watching this as if I'm the race officer instead of supporting our team, you know. But So, it, no, it won't be strange, um, but it'll be interesting anyhow. Yeah, so the wife probably wouldn't have recognised you, would she, with you maybe cheering here, there and everywhere for Team New Zealand? Well, it was her that mentioned it and uh, the fact that, you know, I didn't seem to be too excited about the way they're going and I, I had to think about it. And and that was the I, – I was, from then on, I was right. So um, I was good barrack for the team. It wasn't a problem. What have you made of the evolution of the sport of America's Cup sailing um, I guess from your time as principal race officer when it was sort of mostly traditional keelboats and now they're in these flying machines. Well, my first experience under the America's Cup was in Perth um, with uh, what was New Zealand Challenge and that was with the 12 metres and I thought those boats were fantastic. Um, very slow sailed, heavy lead mines, but... They were they were a boat um, that had a lot of interesting characteristics about them and then um, hard to sail. And so I think that um, that was, you know, when I saw the next edition that came out, which was uh, it started off in San Francisco with the um, where we had NZL20 and boats of that nature. Um, that was into the. It was sort of like an advancement on the twelve meter, but still a boat that was pretty heavy and lead. Um, you know, they're around twenty six tons, I think, and with twenty four of it's probably in the keel. But um, you know, so I thought that was um, that was fantastic sailing. It was real match racing. And then when we came out of that, um, finished off in Valencia and. Um, we thought we were going to have a big boat, but, you know, we ended up with the um, Dita Gift Challenge. But when I, when we sort of um, got past that era and then it was catamarans and we decided, you know, we had the AC45s and we started off, and when I say we, I mean race management, umpires, sailors, everyone involved, um, starting off with a blank sheet of paper of how we deal with this. And, you know, we, we, it took us a little while. We had here, when we first put those 
AC45s in the water to actually determine how we were going to race them. And it was a combination of efforts between, you know, ourselves race uh, and race management, the umpires, and also the sailors as to just how we were going to do it. And uh, that's where we ended up with starts across the breeze and running down downwind and away and then back up, you know, windward leeward type stuff. So that, that became fascinating. And that whole era of the catamaran, um, I thought that was, that was something that we really took um, a great lot of interest in trying to, uh, or making sure we achieved it. And I think, to be honest, even as we got to the last race of the America's Cup, we were still basically just fine-tuning things in that uh, with those classes. So that was a fascinating um, period of time with those boats. So now that we've gone to something quite different, I'll be really interested to see how these boats um, stand up to the rigours of trying to match race and short course racing in particular, because I think that's going to be pretty, um, pretty physical and could be, could be interesting, very interesting. So from a race management perspective, um, will it be easy to manage next year? I guess, given the courses that they'll be racing on, because, you know, you look at the inner harbour course, um, is there potential for that to be quite hazardous for, and, and difficult for race management? Well, no, I think as long as you're prepared, you know, within your race management team, you're fully prepared for the um, the place that you're going to be sailing. So if it's in a harbour, then we've got to protect the race course and we've got to protect uh, the area that we're dealing with, and that includes spectators. So as long as you've got all those um, boxes ticked and, and you've got uh, the infrastructure to deal with it, um, from a race management point of view, it's just a matter of dealing with the conditions on the day and uh, getting on with the game. So I, I don't see that as being anything difficult for a race management team. So the speed they travel at um, doesn't really make any difference, whether it was the old keelboats, um, the heavy and slow, or, or the fast machines that they've got now. That doesn't really make it any more difficult for race management? Is that what you're saying? I don't think it makes it difficult. That it makes you uh, keeps you on your toes uh, because your things are happening a lot quicker, and um, so decisions that you got to make about maybe changing a course or uh, anything of that nature. Then yes, you, as long as your your mind is on the job, it shouldn't be any more difficult. What about the 2010 America's Cup in um, Valencia that saw those gigantic multi-holes racing? I think uh, you were principal race officer for that one as well. And at times uh, you were like 20 miles offshore. Um, so I'm guessing that the conditions on one part of the course could be quite different to where it is somewhere else. Is there any sort of complexity in that sort of side of things? Well, that was a whole different ball game. that one. That, that was... That did that had so many challenges attached to it for us that, and with a very small team, um, we you know we had to get uh, we had to get on with it. And some of the interesting points about that were that there were parts of that of 
that potential race course where we were in a thousand meters of water, thousand meters, not feet. And so the the question was, you know, what are you going to do if you've got to have a turning mark there, or you're going to start there? Well, the the obvious thing was you're not going to anchor. So it was a matter of us practicing hanging on station. Um, with mark boats because our, the marks were used were actually ribs with a big uh, mark on the top of them so as they could be seen. So it was a matter of learning how to hold these boats on station. Now, we, I think we achieved that quite well, um, albeit on the days that we, the two days that we did actually race, we actually ended up racing along the coastline so we were able to anchor uh, both the um, the mark boats and our signal boats. So it never eventuated to, to the fact that we were going to have to try and do this holding station on out on the water. And that was something that was raised in our meetings when, when I sat with Russell and Brad um, from the opposing teams about, you know, how are you going to do this? And I told them we're going to do it on, we're going to hold these boats on station. And so that created uh, a little bit of anxiety amongst both of them or mainly with Russell uh, as to how are you going to how do you know you can stay on station well we'd been practicing that so we knew that we could do it so um, that you know that was interesting dealing with some of that stuff but the second part of that was you have a 20 mile beat to windward doing a windward lure there's 20 miles and I, I thought we'd be there for years trying to get that finished because over 20 miles off Valencia, it's pretty unusual that you get the same wind in direction and strength or similar strength over that period, over that length of, of a, um, of a wind direction. But on those two particular days, particularly that first one, which was 20 miles to windward, um, that breeze took all day to sort of fill down the coast. And um, at the time when we were able to get going, um, according to all our wind data, and because we had wind weather stations up right up the course, um, all those lines, all the arrows lined up at a given time. And with the wind strengths just sitting above the, the minimum, and so we got racing. And... That, that that wind held out um, right throughout the race, although it was dropping at the end. But um, And, of course, we were in the latter part of the day, and it was wintertime there, so it got dark at 5 o'clock. And um, so, you know, we it was an interesting uh, – that was a very interesting event to be dealt with. The other com- – the other thing we had, or the major problem we had, was communication. And how do you communicate over 20 miles? Well, VHF doesn't do that. Um, well, high-powered VHF does. And high-powered VHF in Valencia was illegal. Um, but we found some 40-watt um, radios, and and we tested it, and it, and we could communicate over that 20 miles. And the other thing was that we needed that communication with the yachts as well for safety um, and for any communication we had to give them. 
So that when we discussed that with the um, the harbour master, he was he just said, "Well, I you you haven't told me that, so just get on with it." And um, and we and we did it. So albeit illegal. So, but that was a that was a, a different event altogether, um, and it's an event that whilst we achieved it, we did it. Um, it wasn't the most pleasant one for a number of reasons, and um, you know, most of all, seeing two guys that I coached when they were younger, um, who who would to me was one of the best sailing combinations in the world, if still not the best, if they ever got together again, um, at loggerheads with one another. And, you know, that to me was just, the sport didn't need to be like that. And so on that basis, it, it didn't have a, a camaraderie in it. It was it was them and us, and that was it, you know. And I, I it was just like, let's get this job done and we'll get out of here, you know. Well, it's interesting you say that because there was a fair bit of controversy, wasn't there, around race two, um, which yeah. you got underway after a four-hour delay waiting for wind. And just, just talk to me about that race because um, you wrote in an email to colleagues, and I quote, I've never seen such disgraceful behaviour on a committee boat trying to influence the PRO to the point of ordering me to stop the start sequence. Yeah, that was interesting because... Um, when when we when I was appointed to that role, um, the the host club uh, was which was the Society Nautique Geneve, which is the um, was a Lingi's club. There was some guys there that uh, one of them was had been an IRO, international race officer. Um, they wanted to help out on the committee, and I said, "Well, that's fine." Um, and once they got came to Valencia, um, and then they started to tell me how this event was going to run, I thought, hmm, this is going to be interesting. And uh, so that the first race that we did, the the, um, the Windward Lured 20 miles, yeah, well, they were fine with that. Um, but when it came to the second race, this was another one of those days where we sat and waited for the breeze. And this was now 13 miles to windward and then two 13-mile downwind legs, which formed a triangle. And so this was this was a day that the breeze on our weather systems, uh, with, you know, our weather information, all, everything lined up at, um, at a time which was not too far off a time when we couldn't start because it would have got too late. Um, everything lined up and there was a gentle swell that had been left over from um, a few days of pretty rough weather there that were between after the first race before we got out again in the second one. And I I figured that the swells didn't look that big, but they're probably about a metre. And that was a – the metre was a, um, a figure that had been um, – introduced into the sailing instructions that we wouldn't race in if the sea state was more than a metre. So I ascertained it wasn't a metre, and I don't think it was a metre. But 
these these two boats, you could hear them all the, as they went over these swells. You could hear the alarms going off on all all the alarms they had on these boats for tension and stays and so forth under the mast and all that sort of thing. So I I just I thought well everyone had them wound up and it was a that was the ploy to tell me that things were getting dodgy when I knew damn well they weren't. But um, so that on that particular particular day. It was like that. And when those, all those arrows lined up for us for the wind, I just said, right, we're off. Now, these, these three guys that were on the boat from that club, they decided that they were not going to do it. We said, no, we're not going to. You shouldn't be racing, and we're not going to do it. Well, with that, I told them in no uncertain terms uh, where to go. Um, and um, we... We actually got on and did that. The guy that was driving the boat for me, he's a, um, he is an international umpire. He, um, he raced down, got the flags, went up the side deck with them in his arms. Um, Tom Eamon, he took the um, – he was there as an observer for uh, Oracle. He, he manned the postponement flag, so he took that down. Uh, on the given time, and um, uh, 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 Paco, the, our driver, the umpire, he was running up the side of the boat with all the flags in his arms, and right on the signal, got the right one in the air. But those guys, they didn't. This is a, it's a race that they said was never a race. Um, but the interesting thing was, um, the, the sea state wasn't that bad. And um, they just didn't have a fast cat, and that was the, that was the um, the be all and end all of it. So after that, there was obviously a lot of controversy there, and um, they complained to, to um, World Sailing uh, or ISAF as they were then, I think. And they complained about that, of which um, I gave uh, my report to ISAF, and they they. Um, after going through all that, ascertained that there was nothing I did wrong. Um, I did everything as per should have been done and that there is no need for anyone to complain. So at that point, Ernesto stopped sending me Christmas cards and um, and then we just went our separate ways. But that was... a it, it was not nice, that whole event, really, for, for so many reasons, and that being one of them. So, you know, I, that's what I didn't like about the Dita gift part of it. I guess it was a godsend then that it was all over in two races anyway, being a best-of-three series, wasn't it? Get in, get out. I think it was a foregone conclusion because, um, as you saw in that very first race, um, the, um, the cat, actually um, put the try around um, on the pre-start. They got into irons, got stuck. The gun went. They were still over the line. And I can tell you by the uh, telemetry that we had at the time, the catamaran was 850 metres, I think it was, up the uh, course, that's nearly a kilometre, up the course before the try got started. Well, when they started, 
I think they got past the 10 mile point when they passed the um, they passed the cat and then took the jib down and sailed the rest of the race just with the wing in the air. So that basically was the was the, the writing on the wall. So it was only a matter of time um, to um, you know to um, see the end at the end in sight. So there it was. I guess that sort of illustrates um, your history of not sort of putting up with any rubbish. Um, but how much pressure were you put under at times to run or not run races? Well, I never really bothered about that because um, in my own mind, um, I knew what was the right thing to do at any given time. So. Yeah, I can remember even down here in 2000, in 2000 when we were trying to get races away and we couldn't. And we'd have the chase boat from um, from Luna Rossa there right alongside us with the, all of them just standing there looking up at us, you know. Um, and, I mean, you could, you could read the words. It was like, come on, get on with it, when in fact there was no wind anyhow and it was terrible. So you you felt there were times when I thought I felt the pressure, but I just ignored it because I knew the decisions we were making were the right ones. And you know, I even had I think during that event, um, one of my guys who was monitoring radios and that for me, he said he poked his head out the window when we were waiting for wind, poked his head out the window and said, "You got the whole world against you." And I said, "Well." I don't know what everyone expects you to do when you don't have the conditions that these teams have agreed to race under. And so anyhow, he, he pulled pulled his head back in and, and that was that. But I'd never really, I, I never really felt the pressure um, to, about that because I knew what I was doing at the time. And I think that's, that's something that, as a race officer, if you've if you've got steely nerves and can and you know what you're doing, you won't get into trouble, and you'll you'll end up with the right result. And I think that's that's how I'd approached it. It's probably why you did five. Um, you were five times PRO for the America's Cup then. Anyway, um, there's that famous story though of you calling out Brad Butterworth and. Uh, 2003 so what are your recollections of that one uh, I'm just trying to bring that one back to memory but I remember we had a um, we did have a discussion about something uh, light winds and he was uh, telling on TV that you guys should have been racing and you basically said that's bullshit oh that's right yes you're right um, Yes, yeah, you guys ought to be racing, and um, and we were we were live, we were live on TV, and um, he he just he carried on about it. Came back to me two or three times, and in the end, I did. I said, "Look, you know that's all bullshit," and um, and of course that night, the funniest thing was that night, Brad and Russell. Um, uh, on a speakerphone, rang me, laughing their heads off about, you got caught swearing on television. <laughs> and they just thought that was the funniest thing. Um, 
that could have happened in, during that period because all they were doing was just, you know, it was a wind, it was winding up, trying to wind me up. And, and they knew they were going to have to really work hard to do that because, you know, I coached those guys when they were younger. And, um, and it's funny, you get, you get, once you've been with people like that um, and you've grown with them, you know what's coming from them and they know damn well what's coming back. And and that was just a wind-up to try and get something going, but <laughs> I wasn't wearing it. <laughs> Did You know, the America's Cup, I guess, is very well known for the politics and shenanigans and spin and one-upmanship, gamesmanship. Did you ever sort of enjoy that side of it? Um, yeah, there was a bit of that. Um from time to time, and I'll always remember one one of them was here. In, it was in two thousand, and it was during that period when we we were having trouble with um, with the wind and so forth. And I we I was on the we were on the way back from the race course, and uh, Bruno Trublet, who he always emceed the um, the press conferences after that. He rang me and asked me whether I would appear on the stage with the sailors for the press conference that afternoon. And I think it was a, it was a day um, when we actually hadn't raced. Um, so I went to that and uh, I was up there amongst the guys. And, and, of course, then the questions start coming off the floor. And the interesting one was, and I'll always remember this, was Gary Jobson. Gary Jobson. Um, asked the question of now I know we noticed that um, on this particular day it might have been the day before uh, on a particular day there that when on the on the race when um, Team New Zealand was entering on starboard the start line was shorter than when they entered on port and because the inference to that is quite clear that um, if you shorten the lineup when when the starboard boats your starboard boats entering, um, then the other boats got a, a, quite a bit more of a job to get out of the way and avoid a, a conflict and and maybe a penalty. And that was something that that was a ploy that used to be used in um, in New York during the America's Cups there in the earlier years with the Australians and the Brits and so forth, where they would shorten the lineup when the local boat or the defender was entering on starboard. So <laughs> he was asking that very question. And, of course, my answer to that was quite simple, that our marks were on GPS positions. And on the day that you are questioning now, was a day when we had a tide change in the middle of the um, the starting sequence, and of course the marks dis- the marks were moving all over the place, including the boat, and I've no doubt we did shorten up in that particular day, but it was never intentional, and so that was the end of that particular conversation. But it, I think that, that there's there's always um, there's always someone there that's going to ask you various questions about things that are they know are out of your control, but they want to get they want to fire you up and or put you off track on what you're trying to do or unnerve you or whatever. But 
that's the that day um, when all the questions kept coming. Because um, I remember um, Alan Sefton, he called me and said, "You can't do this. They're going to eat you." And I said, "No, they won't." And he said, "No, they'll, they'll eat you." Well, at the end of that whole um, press conference, Peter Blake came and saw me, and he said, "You ought to be a bloody politician." And you know, sitting, I thought you guys were—I thought you might have got really hammered up there, but you did so damn well. It was good to see. And so, you know, that was that out of that. Uh, event, I gained an awful lot of encouragement and um, and steel, I guess, to push on and and carry on with that job as a PRO. So it was a, it was an interesting period. You also managed to experience some um, some lighter moments. Um, I was reading a story today, and hopefully you remember this one as um, an incident involving uh, Team New Zealand and a lingy during a practice racing off the bays and also involving a double-barreled gun. I'm presuming it's in the lead-up to 2003. What's what's the story there? 2003, yeah, no, interesting. So um, both Alinghi and Team New Zealand, you know, running two-boat programs, both out in the race course area, um, you're running practice races. So we're... um, We'd been out there and set up along, well, when I say alongside them, we were a distance away from them. And um, the, um, so we're, we're running our Windward Lewards and they're running theirs. And um, as, it, as we were sort of getting towards the end of our racing, uh, we could see that their racing was ending up. They were on our starboard side. We were sailing into into northeasterly, and it was a, not heavy. It was probably eight knots, ten knots, and so they're two on our right hand side, um, running their racing, and a bit further to windward of us. And um, I noticed as um, they started their last race, um, we were about to get ready, but they'd started their race. And I noticed that they picked up their bottom marks and, and things like that. And I thought, oh, that'll be an interesting scenario. And so we sent our guys off and they went off up to the, to the top mark that we'd laid. But in between, the wind shifted off to the right by about 15 degrees. And, of course, our finish line, uh, our, where we were, our finish line was a perfect finish for um, those guys to um, to come through if, if they thought that was appropriate. And I said, as our guys are going up towards the top mark, these guys are coming down. And I said to our team, just keep your eye on, on these two Alinghi boats. I'll guarantee it they're going to come through our finish. And because my very squadron-type people saying, no, they won't. No, they won't do that sort of thing. And as they're getting closer, I'm saying, you better stand by because they're going to come straight through here. There's no question about this. And so <laughs> as, as they're approaching, I said to Gerald Flynn, who was our gunner, load both of those barrels up with those big smoke ones you've got. And when they come through here, they're going to come close, right in close to us. 
And if they do, I want you to put them both through the spinnaker. And uh, so he, um, he's he got them loaded up and he's all, yeah, 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 I'm, I'm onto this. And, um, and of course, they, they were off towards the, the pin end of the line. Um, but the boat that Russell was steering with Brad on, Murray Jones and company, they jived before the finish and came straight over to us and then jived on us to, to, do, to, to like finish. Well, we let these both barrels off, but I, unbeknown to me, Gerald pointed the gun the other way. He didn't put them through the spinnaker. And those guys on the boat, I've never, I never laughed so much in my life. Um, this, this two shot that went off, I mean, they were loud and they were smoky. Well, the guys on the yacht, they just all hit the deck. And um, the phone call that night was hilarious because, you know, they, they rang me again to say, Jesus Christ, we, we wondered what was going to happen when we came to there. We didn't expect to get the gun. And I said, I've never seen so many guys hit the deck on a boat in all my life. And they just roared laughing. They thought it was funny as hell. But that was that was some of the lighter moments of, I think, um, and and that, that event was pretty light too because, you know, we had um, – there was those guys racing the Olingi and we had Team New Zealand. I'm neutral about the whole thing. I'm, I'm at the Team New Zealand base. I'm, I'm at their base at times, you know, and we talk and all the rest of it. So that was a very lighthearted, in a way, event to run, particularly from the point of view that, here was um, Dino was um, sailing the boat, you know, a guy we've had a lot to do with as a youngster, and and there's the other guys that we coached as well. So that was interesting, and um, but lighthearted, but fun. Probably wasn't quite as fun uh, the outcome though for Team New Zealand, and um, you know, there's a fair <laughs> bit of um, consternation, I guess, from a lot of the people in the public. Um, around the circumstances, I guess, to um, Alingi and who they had on board. Is that something that you ever chatted to Brad or Russell about, Murray? Oh, yeah. No, we, we often talked about that and um, they weren't concerned with it, although they were getting a lot of stick in the um, down in the viaduct. You know, they had stuff thrown at them and, you know, people just being stupid. Um and I, I think even still today, there are people who um, wouldn't even talk with them um, for that very reason, you know. But those two guys, when when uh, in, in two thousand, when when um, things weren't looking too flash, they came to me and said that there was a lot of lot of difficulties, and they were considering. Um, going with another team and uh well how do you think that's going to go and i said crikey yeah that'll go down like a lead balloon um but you guys are professional yachtsmen and you've got to if you're offered a job which is a better job then you've got to look at it and that was i was aware of um of that going to happen a month before it happened um but had to keep it under my hat but um, but we did discuss that, and um, I just, I mean, I, 
I, a lot of people talk to me about that. Why are these these guys out there like that? They shouldn't be allowed and all the rest of it. And it was like, get over it because it's they're professional sailors and and that and look where it is now. I mean, every, most Kiwis sail for other teams, <laughs> you know. So that's professional yachting. Mm. So you were the PRO for five America's Cups. Um, what was it between 2000 and, and 2013? Is there one that sort of stands out more than the others? I think Valencia on the 32nd America's Cup with the last of the version five boats. I thought that was was um, a really, really neat event. There was 12 teams um we we had two courses running out there. Um, we were racing when we did the Louis Vuitton. We were racing for nearly three months, um, and that was exciting. The teams all communicated with one another. Um, there was a lot of camaraderie, and and it was a and, and we had it well organised. So it was that to me was a really a really special event. That that did go well. What was it like to have um, front row seats for Oracle's comeback from eight one down at the two thousand and thirteen America's Cup in San Fran? Yeah, well, that was interesting. That we, um, we when we saw that going on, we thought, "Crikey, this is um, it's an absolute bath." And um, and then as as the racing wore on there. Um, I mean, we could see that there were issues with um, with the Oracle rig, and it just needed some time for those guys to be able to make some um, adjustments to whatever they had. But obviously, when you've got a complex um, rig like that, it, you you can't do it in five minutes, and it doesn't. You know, it takes more than overnight to make some major changes. So, yeah, we, you know, Ian Murray and I, every day we'd we'd have a little conversation about the whole thing, and and um, and once it um, once they had that break, and they came back, um, their rig was was different, and there were other refinements as well. But boy, they took off, and um, I mean, every day we're going. Well, it should be over today. No, it's not over today. It's one more closer to Team New Zealand. And it just went all the way down the wire to the wire. Um, and interesting how um, my daughter Carla came to over with her young daughter to, they thought they would see the last races for the America's Cup. And um, so they were there for nearly a week. And during that time, um, the gap was starting to close up. And then she had to come back um, and watch the final here. <laughs> so I went all the way up there, never saw the final. But So that's how long it sort of just transformed on. And, and through that time, we were just saying, well, crikey, it's got to end today, surely, wouldn't it? And um, so, yeah, it was, it was interesting um, seeing that close down um, and, uh, and finally get nailed. Yeah, well, Team New Zealand obviously came very close to actually winning a ninth race. Um, race 13, as, as it was, they were uh, leading by, 
was it more than a thousand meters um and then uh but missed with the time limit um expired so what was the i guess the chatter on the committee boat what was going through your mind when you kind of knew that team new zealand wasn't going to beat the time limit and and lift the cup well we knew that pretty much all the way through the race um because uh that the um I think it was the the lower limit that they set. We knew they couldn't get round in the uh, if it stayed on, you know, in that the wind stayed in that um, in that quadrant. So it was a pretty foregone conclusion for us that once we got halfway through and we could see the wind was not going to increase, um, that they were not going to make it, and. I mean those those limits and those times, all of that stuff was set by the by the teams and the race management. It was not our suggestions; it was theirs. So, um, you know, when uh, when our our system shut down, because it's that system was automatic, and so yeah, if the wind went to a over the wind limit, the system would stop, and we'd have to start again. So this was the same situation. Um, the time was running out. We could see the clock winding down. And um, bang, time clock stops. And they haven't finished. And that's it. And, of course, they got that signal on their boat. And, um, and of course, I called them and just said, sorry, guys, um, the time limit has expired. And the, the, all I got back from the boat was, uh, yeah, we know. And I think that we know is part of the, well, we helped make that rule that um, that uh, that limit was, you know, when we said that seven knots of breeze is not going to get you around, well, we don't want to sail in those conditions. Well, you're going to sail in it. So it was that was a, unfortunate for them, but um, I guess um, lesson learned out of that. There was a lot of lessons, I guess, they learned out of that whole exercise but um for us it was it was easy because uh we couldn't fudge time you can't fudge time and um and the system we were operating on uh was there for everyone around the world to see um the time clock running and all the rest of it so and there you go so <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't a difficult decision for us to make because it was made for us I remember that call you made to Oracle as well for them to acknowledge and Ben Ainsley was on the Oracle boat said, thanks for that. Um, so completely different reactions like that, that that got us out of a fairly sticky point and, and um, obviously went on and famously won the cup. Um, I sort of just want to change tack a little bit here because um, we've, we've talked about your uh, role as a race officer, um, but there's also more to Harold Bennett than just race management. Um, so let's just step back a wee bit. You were a pretty tidy sailor in your time. Um, I think you're growing growing up on at Murray's Bay on the North Shore, and you sailed everything from P class to Moss Z class, Q class, 18 footers. Going through my list here, OK dinghies and keelboats. Um, so what was I guess the pinnacle of your achievements as a sailor? Well, I think my pinnacle was in the sailing in the OKs, the OK dinghies. Um, I think I sailed in three world championships with that. Um, my best place out of that, I think, was seventh in, um, 
in Adelaide in 1974. Because um, uh, we had a Worlds here in um, 1970, I think. Uh, yeah, 1970, we had the Worlds in Auckland. And uh, I think I got 15th there, something like that. And then I went um, in 71, I went overseas, 71, I went overseas to Kiel and um, I raced there. And that was a huge fleet of boats. Uh, two of us went that year. So I think the OKs were probably um, the, the, the special one for me. Um, although all the rest of my sailing I enjoyed a lot. And, you know, even when I sailed P-Class, you know, this was the days of the, the plank boats and the gunter rigs. Um, and I'd sail from Murray's Bay round to Browns Bay where Ron Holland would sail from Tor Bay. And we would race there and uh, with Keith Atkinson running our races. So that was that was way back, and, and the, that was something else too. Crikey, thinking of that. But, yeah, it was interesting sailing and, and some of the other stuff um, and did probably sail a year in, in 18 footers with Dave Keane and um, uh, forget the name of his boat now. And so we did a year of that and did a bit of keelboat sailing on uh, keelboats um, during that time, but nothing special. And um, and then it was, uh, I think it was in 74. Uh, 74, I'd been to the Worlds in Aussie, and we were, uh, we were back here, and um, Clive Roberts was with us, and we were doing, uh, we were running youth, start, uh, youth regattas, or youth training, at Takapuna, and we had a day where there was uh, no, um, we couldn't sail, it was blowing hard. So we were playing soccer on the beach, and of course I, you know, stupid, you know, you start you start playing football with younger guys who are quite aggressive, and um, I'd managed to stand on the ball and had a bad fall and, and damaged my knee, and I was on crutches for oh, quite a while. And uh, so it put me out of sailing OKs at that point, and I never went back into them. And that's when I started coaching, um, coaching kids down at Murray's Bay. And um, and and for I think the first couple of years that we were coaching kids down there, P class was the team, was the group. Um, we won we won the nationals um, I think two years in a row. To, with different people, and um, and then it was at that point that um, it was Russell's father, Alan Coots, who um, came up to one of the nationals when Russell was sailing, and it was probably one of his first nationals he sailed in, and he saw what we'd been doing, what I'd been doing, and and he said to me, "How would you like to come down to Dunedin and um, part some of your knowledge on the kids down there?" And I said, yeah, that'd be nice. And so he um, he organised the flights and I stayed with them down there and did some coaching over a couple of, or a weekend, I think it was. Might have been a long weekend. And that's where it sort of started. And um, from that, Yachting New Zealand 
then asked me whether I would consider doing it, you know, on a wider scale. And so, yeah, whilst I was whilst I was running a, um, a structural steel workshop um, as a foreman, I um, I was um, moonlighting doing that as well. So away on weekends and and doing all those sort of uh, those sort of trips with coaching all around the country. And that sort of started things off um, in the coaching side of it. So well, that was an interesting era. Um, and it's funny how you, you have a problem, like the problem being I was um, had a badly damaged knee. And, um, and it was like, oh, the end of the world, I can't sail. And, but one door closes, another one opens. And, um, and that's where all that sort of, like the coaching part of it started for me. So am I right in saying that you were New Zealand's first professional coach? Was that the role? That, that you... the yeah, I believe that's the case. What, what was that role and, and was that the YNZ one? Yeah, it was YNZ, um, well, Yachting Federation as they were then. Um, I, was, uh, I was national youth coach and uh, during that period, uh, I, I'd worked for like I'd, I'd sort of done it part time for about four years, um, all over the place, up and down the country, and and um, and then they asked me if I'd do it, go full time, and so I did, and um, and I think that was 1979. Might have done that. 79 went full time, and uh, so yeah, that was. Uh, it was a change of sort of vocation, if you like to put it, and uh, gradually worked our way through that. So I was into that until uh, so I was with Yachting New Zealand or, or Yachting Federation until 1980, 86, 87, 86 or 87, 86. We went over to Perth, and I went on secondment at that point um, to that uh, New Zealand Challenge team. To help with, um, I guess it was with coaching, with um, whatever we were doing. You know, there was all sorts of jobs to do, and um, and then out of that, of course, came the opportunity to start that youth program at the squadron. So that was a spin-off out of that America's Cup in Perth. Yeah, talk to me about that because you're sort of credited with creating that um, youth training program at the Royal New Zealand Yacht Squadron. Um, how did you kind of crystallise that idea and then turn it into something um, that has become so successful? Well, to be honest, um, that wasn't only me that was involved with that at the time. Um, there was there was a scenario that was evolving in Perth where um, we were bringing people over to try out um, for crew positions and we kept, you know, we'd go, oh, crikey, these guys, all of them, all they want to do is step on a boat, go and race it, come back and go to the pub. And um, so it was a matter of it, when the professional guys got there, like Brad and company that came off um, Blakey's, um, I think it was Lion at that time, when those guys arrived there, that was a professional attitude that suddenly came in. And so there was more time spent um, there was as much time spent preparing and dealing with the aftermath of thing, the post sailing, 
as there was with sailing. And so the guys, we were bringing people over and none of them would last because they didn't, they didn't think that that's what they wanted to do. But um, so, I, you know, we, it was a different era. Um, it was going right into the professional part. And, um, and I think that, uh, I think we just, we, we grew out of that, you know, at that point. So because the America's Cup was sort of kicking off, is that why the youth training program had such a focus on match racing? Well, yes, it was. And to, and let me just go back one step again. Um, it was Richard Endine who'd come across to, um, to Perth to observe at one point. And we were chatting about um, the fact that, you know, so many of, our, of these supposed good sailors in New Zealand didn't really know much about campaigning. And what we need to do was to instill that idea into younger people. And so Richard was, um, he was pretty keen to come back to New Zealand and see if he, if the squadron would think about running a youth program. And Michael Fay was pretty, um, he was pretty keen to see that sort of thing happen. And I think he helped start that, get that kick started. But basically I came back um, before the America's Cup started, to be honest, and began that program um, at the squadron with pretty much under Richard's guidance as well. And, um, and with, with that, we started, uh, well, we set off with some parameters and, um, you know, what we wanted to achieve and we like guidelines of um, we'd like to run, we want to run an international event within five years. Uh, we'd like to go and sail in a major event within five years. We'd like to maybe get a place in one in five years. Well, we'd achieved pretty much all of those goals um, in two years, um, and but one events as well. So what we were doing was obviously, um, obviously had some impact on the sailors that we were dealing with, and and that was uh, the first boats that we got were the Elliot 5.9s, and um, and we started we had them for 12 years, and worked through those. Um, with sailors, um, and out of that early those early years, there's a large number of those sailors now are called veterans of the round the world racing, uh, and and Olympians, and, and so the list goes on. So you're absolutely right. Um, there was there was some good guidance from Richard, um, and the and the squadron um, general committee and their commodores at the time. They were very appreciative of the fact that they were seeing some sort of results with uh, what we were doing. So, yeah, that's, I feel quite, I, I just chuckle every time I go and see that um, things happening down there at the program. And I still go and run some of their racing um, from time to time. So, yeah, very successful. And there's no doubt about that. And I, if you'd have asked me in the very beginning, whether it would have succeeded the way it has, I would have said, well, I'm not sure that it will, but we'll give it a shot. But it's certainly just, it's grown and and really made strides, great strides. And it's wonderful to see still going. Yeah. Well, there's been some immensely successful sailors come out of that and it's propelled a lot of 
youngsters into pro sailing, isn't it? So is that one of the things that maybe has given you the most satisfaction out of all the things that you've been involved with? Oh, I think so. Um, I think, I, you know, I put, I probably put 15 years of uh, my, my life into that. Um, and, you know, and so when you see the rewards for what you've, something you've started and then being able to find other people to carry it on, um, when you see that sort of thing happening, you can't help but feel proud about it. And uh, so I'd have to say that that's probably something that I, I really cherish a lot. Well, you also dabbled with the Olympics. Um, you went to the 96 um, and 2000 Olympics um, with the New Zealand team. What was your, I guess, role in that um, team and, and what, what were those experiences like for you? Uh, the Olympics was some, was another another part altogether as well i can take you back to 1984 um i had been um in 1983 i was um asked to do some what they called olympic solidarity coaching where you uh isaf as they were whatever they were then isaf i think um when they would find someone like myself as a coach, ask them if they would go into a third world country and try and train up the sailors to get them to a standard where they could go to the Olympics. Well, I got, I got assigned one to go to Pakistan. And um, I went to Pakistan there, spent a month in Pakistan um, in Karachi, training uh a, a fin sailor, 470 team, and a souling team. And these boys, uh, they're all uh, naval officers. And so uh, I went there, coached them, got them to the point where um, they thought, you know, they could get to the Olympics. And, of course, um, the end result of that was I got asked if I would take them to the Olympics. So... The first time I was involved in the Olympics, uh, well, that's not the first one. The, fir- the first time I was involved in the, really in a team was with Pakistan. So I was wearing a Pakistani uniform, and that was to 1984. Um, the first Olympics I'd have been involved in was 76, where um, I had Murray Jones and Dave Barnes on a youth team that we were doing the Youth Worlds in, um, in Toronto. And those boys had been um, accepted as they'd been accepted as reserves for 470 at the Olympics, and so we went to up to the and stayed with the Olympic team um, as uh, as an outsider of the team, but helping within the team, and um, and so spent the first one there. That was rather interesting. that was our first foray into that. But um, the, the 84 one was, was interesting because there was Russell sailing for New Zealand in the fin. And um, after the last time we sailed in youth, uh, he sailed youth 19, uh, must have been 81, would have been his last, 81? Yeah, 81 was his last one. And when we were coming back from that event, he was, we started to talk about his plan 
he wanted to win an Olympic medal in the fin. And he was a scrawny little guy that had lost all the weight to sailing uh, on the laser. Now telling me he's going to sail a fin. And I, I, we were sort of chuckling about it. But he worked on it. And um, so I, I, I mean, I didn't obviously have anything to do with him there. But, um, but uh, it was fun being there to see him win that gold medal. And, um, you know, having had a lot to do with him in his earlier years and through his youth years. So that was, that was where that started. And then the next time I went was um, 84. No, sorry, that was 84. The next one was 88 in uh, Seoul. Um, well, we went, we were in Pusan actually. But so I was the head coach in, in Pusan um, when Johnny Cutler won his bronze. And, um, and what else did we get there? We got other medals there as well. And I can't think of them off the top of my head. Uh, the tornadoes um, backed up with a silver, didn't they? Silver there. Yep, that's right. Um, so, and the boards also got one there too, I think. But um, so that was 88. And then 92, um, I didn't go to the Olympics at 92. I went to pre Olympics there. Um, and then 96, I was on the, um, as a support to the team. I wasn't actually on the team, but was supporting the team. And at that point, Richard Ending was the, I think he was the chairman of the Olympic Committee for sailing. And, um, so I basically formed up with him to help him run the, you know, that, that team at that time up there. And so I was mainly a support there. But then 2000, uh, I was the head coach of 2000 uh, in Sydney and coaching with Dan Slater uh, in the 49er. And we'd done quite a lot of work with the 49er. So um, that was with Dan. and. Um, and then uh, 2004, I went as a support to Athens as well. Um, and uh, that was basically to help them with, with their rules, to help them with anything we could. Uh, but I was primarily there supporting uh, Sharon Ferris and, and the girls sailing the Yingling. So uh, that was, yeah, they, they were all pretty special times as well because um, you know, the people that most of those people, I coached them earlier on. So was spending time with them well, in their earlier years, rather. And I was spending time with them in their most important times. So that was, that was encouraging too. And, and quite, um, and quite rewarding, I think, in a lot of ways. So you, you're obviously a hugely experienced coach. So then why get involved in race management? Well, that wasn't my fault. That was that was Russell Coots and Brad Butterworth that did that. Um, that was a funny story. So um, I had um, I was working in we're in the squadron. I was running the youth program. We were I was also part time running the racing for um, the squadron as well. And um, as a I guess a race secretary in a way, um, but also running. I ran a lot of the all the youth stuff on the harbour there, and so when the boys won that cup in '95, 
they came back and and of course the uh, the squadron there was there was plenty of um, plenty of people in the squadron that uh, sort of fancied themselves in the position of uh, running the America's Cup and and so forth and. I um, never thought much about that. I I just thought this will be fun to watch, you know. And uh, it wasn't until they'd run one of these regattas and, and they, uh, they'd run one in Wellington uh, when they were doing those Road to America's Cup regattas that it was the first one they did. And they, they came back and there was obviously some issues. And they, Brad... I'll never forget this day, but I'm in the office of the, at the squadron. Brad and Russell, Murray Jones, Simon Daubney, and uh, Dean Phipps all arrived at the squadron and said, we want to talk to you. And I thought, oh, Christ, what do they want? And um, so we sat down and um, they said, look, simple terms, uh, we want you to run the racing um, for the America's Cup and and the and these Road to America's Cup. We want it because we want someone that we can that we know that we know how you operate. You know us. You've coached us since we were kids. So we want to um, we want that to happen. I said, well, that's not up to me, but it's an awful um, awfully generous offer and. I'd, I'd be pretty happy to try that out. But that'll be a conversation you'd need to have with a Commodore. Um, and Russell said, what's his phone number? And so with that, I gave him John Heiss's phone number. And then that followed up. Um, this, is a, this was somewhere around the midday that these boys have come round. So somewhere around the 3 o'clock mark, John Heiss arrives at the squadron and sat down with me and started talking about um, how I should be doing that for them. So that was how that started. So it was um, it was those guys that got me into it, and um, and you just sort of never get out of it. And that followed through pretty much all of the America's Cups that I've been involved with. So yeah, it was it was interesting, but um, something that I didn't expect. Um, it's something that I had huge pride in doing as well, so it was a it was pretty pretty um, it was something that I guess I uh, I appreciated a lot as well from those guys. What sort of qualities then do you think a good race officer needs? Um, you need a thick hide. Um, you need to have a damn good understanding of the game. Um, and by that I mean dealing with all the various different conditions. You know what your parameters are. Um, you keep your cool um, so you don't lose it. And I see a lot of race officers do that. Uh, and, and sort of you've just got nerves of steel. And so you don't take – you you – you don't take the garbage. You um, you just get on with the job the way you know it has to be done. And that's what I think makes a success of it. But it's a, having a very, very good understanding of the game 
is 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 one of the key factors. So if there's someone listening out there who's, who's sort of contemplating a, a move into race management, is there a piece of advice that you would give them? The best thing you can do in to get better at it is to do it. And clubs, um, all clubs are, are screaming out for race officers. It's not that hard to get into it. And Yachting New Zealand, they've got their, uh, I think they've started their online um, courses that you can do. And so from that point, it's it's really a case of don't talk, talk about it, don't think about it, get on and put your put your nib in out there and do it. And then and just keep listening to the uh, to those that are helping to mentor you and that way you'll move on. But you must you must have a good understanding of the game. So just get on with it and do it and you'll find that it's not that difficult as long as you understand what, what has to happen. You talked about Russell and, and others twisting your arm to get into race management and Russell's twisted your arm to get involved with the Manly Sailing Club. Um, to what? Just talk to me, I guess, a, a, about that, your involvement there and the Russell Coote Sailing Foundation um, because you're also vice commodore, I think, of Manly when Russell was, was commodore. How did, how did that sort of all come about? Yeah, well, that was interesting again um, from him. And uh, Barry Tom's a, a, an integral part of this whole thing as well. And the um, the club at that point was, uh, I'm going back, what, three or four years now, that the club was in a pretty low um State and the fact that we did, there wasn't a lot of members there, there was a reasonable number of Zephyr sailors sailing out of there, which included myself. Um, and I think that we, uh, Russell was pretty keen about trying to get something going for juniors. And the club had a, uh, some, uh, some of the, uh, the skiffs that were bicks as they are, were, and, um, he called me one day. This is this is a typical Russell. He called me one day, and he said, "Oh, I'm doing a bit of coaching with some kids down at, off Manly, and I wondered whether you might be able to give me a morning or give us a bit of time and and um, and you know help out." And I said, "Yeah, no problem. I'm happy to do that." And uh, so down I go to Manly to have a go at that. And uh, so we borrowed some boats from the club and. And did a bit of coaching, and then one day led to a second day, to a week, to a year, to two years, and here we are today. Um, so uh, when we decided that if if we're going to run this sort of coaching program, we should get involved more with the yacht club, and um, so Barry, Tom, and I both decided that. Russell should be the Commodore. So we said to Russell, look, here's a, here's a go. We think it's important you be there as Commodore. And he said, he turned to me and he said, well, I'll be Commodore if you be Vice Commodore because I don't know what to do. And I said, well, I'm not sure either, but anyhow, yeah, I'll, I, that's all right. We'll go with that. And so we, that's how we started. So Russell did a year as the Commodore and, um, 
and my role with that was basically he was the figurehead and I was the doer. So so that that's how that rolled for that year. Um, he, we we moved him to a position as president of our club. Now we formed a position as president, and um, which I think is important because it keeps a connection with Russell to the to the club and the foundation. And Barry Tom is now the commodore of of the club, um, and of course he he said, "Well, I'll only be commodore if you're the vice commodore." So that was well, okay. Well, I'm still the vice commodore, so that's fine. But um, that's been, I think, has been a pretty good combination of of people because there's quite a lot of experience there that we can um, that we can call upon, and we've been successful in in mentoring some of our people to get better at some of the race management stuff as well, and so the club's moved on, and um, and so right now um, we're just waiting for. Uh, the foundation to come back online after the COVID issues that we've had, um, where we had to shut that down. So, um, so yeah, we're just uh, we're just moving on, and and we um, keep the club roll, keep the club rolling. You should have known there was more to it than just a morning's work when Russell Coots calls you, isn't it? Yeah, well, I I figured that it was going to be more than that, and. Um, and of course, that just led to you know. Well, I'd want you to be a trustee of the trust. Oh, okay, all right. Well, we'll do that too. So, but I don't mind because when when you've got someone like that that puts their hand up and said, "How are we going to do this? I'll put the money in to do it. Let's do that." And you got to say, "Well, all right, I'm on. I'm in. We'll we'll do whatever we have to do." So I I didn't have any problem with. Um, with any of the roles I've had to play for him, um, and and will continue to do so because I think he's a he's a damn good person to have hanging around um, in our sport of sailing. So it's a no-brainer for me. How, how would you describe your relationship with Russell? Because I'm guessing it goes back what a good forty-five years or so. It goes back a long way till he was when he was a junior. Um, he, you know, he, um, we got on very well all the way through it, our period, and there was three full years that I worked with him at, through the youth. Um, I took him to three World Youth Championships, of which the last one he won. Um, and then after that, I didn't see an awful lot of him after that. Although when he got into match racing, um, he. Uh, he was like a bit of a fish out of water, and we did talk a bit then. And um, so I had a bit to do with him through that, but not a lot. Um, he was well on the way then to um, to his full success. And I knew that as a youngster when I saw him in P-Class, and I thought, boy, this guy's got a – he's got a long way to go, and he's going to go there and get there. And, I, I mean, I'd never at that time thought that he – He'd um, have a have a record on winning America's Cup races and um, you know and the like and 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 end up being knighted. I never thought about that, but that's been a real success story um, for him. And so our relationship is we're great friends and always have been and will be forever, I guess. 
Um, I see him from time to time and we always have a laugh. And um, we've had a few laughs over the years. So, um, and some interesting ones. So, yeah, no brainer to be involved. What else are you involved with these days? Because uh, I saw you obviously down at the 49er Worlds at Akarana at the end of the year. Uh, I think you were Millennium Cup uh, at the start of this year. You're going to be involved in the youth trials later on. You know, Is it sailing full noise still for you? Well, it is because um, not only uh, – what I've got on my plate now is we've, we've got um, – well, for the last four years, I've been running that Millennium Cup up in the Bay of Islands for the Marine Industries Board. And, of course, this year we've got is a bigger one. Well, we think it'll be bigger. And um, so I have that this year. But before that, I've got the um, – we've got your youth trials to do um, at Manly, which I'll be involved with. And then in the new year – um, well, I've always been down at the Peter Blake for the last six or seven years, I think. So that happens before Christmas and take control of that. And then um, I'll be in the Bay of Islands for the Millennium Cup this next year. And then the squadron have got me now contracting me off to do their super yacht regatta uh, down here. And the... Um, the match racing for the Youth America's Cup. So it just doesn't seem to stop. It just keeps going. And uh, But I, I don't have a problem with it. It's, it's, it's nice to be involved. And while I can still do that sort of thing, why not do it? But I, tend, I am taking other people with me who I can see that will get um, an experience from it and that can move on and, and take over these roles that, you know, we end up getting away from. Well, it's certainly been a massive contribution to the sport, that's for sure. And, and so there's been a lot to, to talk about. Um, so, look, I thank you for your time today. But, um, look, I cannot let you go without telling us your worst wipeout ever. So, uh, Harold Bennett, what is it? Well, this is a good one. This was in a squadron race. Um, it was a squadron points race, and uh, at the time I had uh, an Elliott 7.9 keelboat uh, called a Vita, um, which was a um, pretty quick little machine. And um, we were doing one of those uh, races that uh, goes out to Navy Boy, Haystack, and then back and finish up in the harbour. And... Um, we had a nice breeze of about eight to eight or nine knots of breeze. And um, so we're racing and I'm, I've got another competitor, John Roundtree, who's a, he's an international judge and umpire. He's racing his um, Ross 830. And he's, we're coming down the side of um, Rangitoto, which would be the northwestern side. And we're coming down there. And I'm thinking to myself and said to the other guys on the boat, down here there's a rock shelf and I can see John Roundtree who's inside me. Um, he's got to be damn close to that. And we're going down there and we're, we're still outside of him and we're outside of him by 
probably 30, 40 metres. And I thought, well, if he doesn't hit it, then we won't hit it. Well, there was a hell of a crash. Bang, we stopped dead. And um, we managed to find it. And uh, we, it, all of a sudden, we've got a bit of water coming in. And uh, so we radioed base and got an urgent haul out and um, had found that we'd broken um, some of the, uh, or the ring frame inside the boat that the keels bolted to. Uh, we'd hit it pretty hard, obviously. We're only doing about six knots, but it was enough to throw everyone off their feet and um, get the boat out of the water and, and then um, had a major birthday inside the boat and then with a new keel and so forth, and then the boat got sold after that. But, yeah, that, was a, <laughs> that wasn't one of, my, uh, one of my best ones, I can tell you. I'm guessing you've given that spot a wide berth uh, every other time you've gone past now. Absolutely. I know exactly where it is now. And, uh, and and the funny thing was, when I talked to John Roundtree about it, he said he wasn't sure where it was. So that, that sort of, um, I, I thought to myself that day, you know, before it happened, I thought to myself, he's running a risk being in there because he's, that lasted rocks down there somewhere. And I thought we were well outside it. Bang. <laughs> Maybe they should rename it the Harold Bennett Rock. Oh, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a good place to stop. Um, so once again, look, really appreciate your time uh, this afternoon. It's been a, a very interesting insight into your um, journey in the sport, which has taken you on very many different roads, that's for sure, and is continuing to do so. Um, so we look forward to catching up with you at the next regatta, wherever that may be. Um, and uh chatting with you about some other experiences so yeah thanks again well it's been it's been a pleasure doing it because it um it's been one hell of a ride i can tell you that and an interesting ride and um and one that has got so many wonderful memories to it and um and and not only that uh with the the youngsters that i spend a lot of time with seeing the large number of them that have gone on and had some real success in offshore racing, Olympics, um, match racing, all of those, every aspect of our sport. Um, those that have been in, that I have been involved with, it's it's been an absolute pleasure to deal with it. And um, but more so, I just feel so warm inside when I when I see the successes of it. So, and certainly the the squadron youth program, because I think that's um, that had a significant bearing on on so many of those people. So thank you. Well, that's it for another episode of Broad Reach Radio. Thanks for tuning in. I think you'll agree Harold Bennett has made a massive contribution to the sport both in New Zealand and internationally. Let us know if you've got any feedback by emailing michaelb at yachtingnz.org.nz. Just a reminder, we'll be taking a break next week, but we'll return in a fortnight. Take care.